Welcome to Aiming for the Moon. I am Taylor Bledsoe. And I'm Maddie Henry. And on this podcast, we interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. That's right. And today we will be interviewing Professor James Salzman. He is the Donald Brin Distinguished Professor of Environmental Law with a joint appointments at the UCLA School of Law and the UCSB Brin School of Environmental Science and Management. He is the co-author of the best-selling book, Mine, and he is also the author of Drinking Water, A History. And today he'll be discussing ownership laws and how they shape our society. So here's the interview. Well, welcome, Professor Salzman, to the interview. Thanks so much for coming on Aiming for the Moon. And thanks so much for reaching out. I think it's terrific that you've got such such ambition to create your own podcast that's heard around the world. Thank you. It Well, thank you again for coming on the show. Now, to start off, the best-selling book that you co-authored was mine, and it talked about ownership laws in almost a Freakonomics style, which is another book, listeners, if you haven't heard of that one. So it was an interesting way to approach ownership law because it seems to be a very boring subject, like to everyone else who doesn't really study it. So I'm curious, why did you want to write a book about ownership law? I mean, you obviously did really well and it's fascinating. And I was never, I've never been as fascinated as I was while looking over the book about ownership law. So why did you write it? Sure. So, um, so think about a fish, right? So fish spends its life swimming around, doing things that fish do. How often does the fish think to itself, huh, I'm swimming in water, right? Not very often, although obviously once the fish starts to realize that, everything starts to seem a bit a bit different. Uh, Michael and I, my co-author, we realize that we're like fish and the water we're swimming in is ownership. So let me give you just a very, a very simple example. Let's say that you've got, you go to a playground, there are two kids that uh, young kids seem to be having a fight over a shovel. And all you hear is mine, mine, mine. You think, oh, what a silly, you know, a silly argument. If you dig a little deeper, what you start to realize is that each of the kids is telling a very different story. So one is saying it's mine because I had the shovel first. In other words, the kid was playing with a shovel. He put it down, for instance, turned around. Someone else was holding on to it. It's mine because of first possession. The other kid is saying, no, it's mine because of current possession. I'm holding on to it right now. And one of the things we realized in writing this book is there are really just six simple stories that everyone uses to claim everything in the world. And we can get into those stories a bit later, but I think the main thing I want you and your listeners to, to appreciate is that ownership is really simply about who gets what and why and determines where you stand in line where you park, the kind of food you eat. Uh, Almost anything you can possibly think of that's valued has an ownership component, right? So you might ask yourself, well, why why is this mine and not yours, right? And it could be something as simple as a jacket or your laptop. It could be your house. It could be your place in school. All of those are matters of ownership, right? How do we decide when there's not enough to go around who gets it and who doesn't? So it's much more of, although like when you get into the actual laws, they're kind of nitty gritty and a bit hard to understand for people who aren't trained in reading it, but they're very practical stuff. And it's, as you said, a fish and water, it surrounds everything we do in our lives. Absolutely. So it's, you discuss ownership design and what exactly is ownership design? Can you explain some of that? Sure. So 
Uh, there's always a case where the owner of a resource, of an asset, has to decide who gets it. And the owner oftentimes can design who gets it in order to benefit her specific interests, right? So let me give you another this sort of simple home example. Um, do you have any siblings? I do. I have two younger siblings. Okay. So when there's a, a, a pie or a piece of cake, do you fight over who gets it? Or is it very simply you all come to complete agreements immediately who's going to get how much the remaining piece of cake or pie? Usually there is an authoritarian and usually that has to be a parent and they're like, well, we're going to slice this up five ways. And that's usually how that ends up. That's ownership engineering, right? And so what they could say is, Taylor, you're going to get the biggest piece because you finished your homework or you helped with the chores. Um, Or what they might say is, let's say you said you have two siblings, there are three of you. They might say, Taylor, you slice this into three pieces and you choose last. Right. And that's going to lead to a certain kind of behavior as well. Let me give a larger, a larger example. Uh, so um, a lot of cities um, have a fast lane on the highway. And the fast lane traditionally is given out as first come, first serve. You get into the fast lane when you're driving and you stay in the fast lane as long as you want. People may honk, but you can stay in the fast lane. A lot of cities, you said you're in Little Rock. Little Rock probably has this the uh, traffic hour going into the city in the morning leaving in the evening, a lot, of the, a lot of cities have basically allocated the fast lane during the hours of the heaviest commute to be what's called an HOV lane, the high occupancy vehicle lane. And what they're saying is if you carpool, if you have two or three or four people in, that, in your car, then you can get in the fast lane. That's ownership engineering because it is basically encouraging people to carpool. And if you carpool, you get a benefit. You get access to the to the fast lane. There are tons of examples like this. I mean, anytime you're waiting, you're waiting in line, or you're trying to get access to something, and there's someone, as you said, an authoritarian who controls it. There's a reason why you get it or why you don't. So when you fly, right? Who gets on the plane first? It's those with platinum or your emerald or silver, some other semi-precious metal from frequent flyers. They basically, the airlines are rewarding those who are the best customers. That's ownership engineering uh, as well. Or to take the most recent example, last year, COVID, right? The COVID vaccine. You may recall who got first access to the COVID vaccine. Pretty much everyone agreed healthcare workers get it first. But after that, who's next in line? Should it be the elderly and those who are most vulnerable? Should it be kids so they can go back to school? Uh, New Jersey gave primary uh, gave priority to smokers. Right. Everyone's sort of arguing, I should be first in line. And the controller of the resource, the ownership engineer, so to speak, she's got to decide who gets to the front of the line. So it's basically a way of arranging a social structure where you award the things that you want people to happen and like punish, the th- well, not really punish, but just put less a priority on things that you don't want people to do. So ownership really is a social construct and able to that um, kind of really either that really controls the people who are in it, if that makes sense. So it's a way of setting up. It's it's a way of setting up a society. That's right. You can't have society without rules of ownership. Right. And what's funny is you go back to the the creation myths of Western civilization. They all turn on ownership. So you think about the creation myth of, of Greek of Greek mythology. Right. As you may recall, that's in Prometheus. What does Prometheus do? Prometheus steals fire from the gods on Mount Olympus. 
and he gives it to the humans. That sparks literally human civilization. He takes something that's not his and he's punished for it. But that's how civilization starts. Take the Garden of Eden story, right? What happens? God basically says to Adam and Eve, this is your garden. Treat it like it's your own, except this tree over here, there's a fruit on this tree. Do not take it. It's not yours. And they take it and they, and they, and they eat it and they are literally evicted, right? They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And it's curious that these sort of core creation myths all turn on ownership, this notion of ownership. Why is that? Well, Michael and I think it's because setting rules for who gets what, for allocating these scarce resources, if you don't have these rules, you don't have society, you don't have civilization, because we're left basically just beating each other over the head with clubs, saying it's mine because I've got a bigger club. That's not how society, that's not how any society works. So ownership laws, they're not just kind of a cool thing to talk about from the legal perspective and say, oh, you know, that's kind of a cool fact. They're much more of a um, of a driving factor in the way we live our lives in general. And it, it, interesting. Ex- yeah, yeah, you can add to that's that. That's exactly right. The point is that so we think about ownership, ownership laws, like with laws and lawyers. The fact is, ninety nine point nine nine percent of ownership conflicts never go to court, never involve the police never involve the lawyers. The only ownership conflicts that go to court are these bizarre deviants, right? Think about your regular day. How many times you're dealing with ownership issues? You're probably dealing with them about every 10 minutes, right? Why is something yours? And why can't someone just walk over and take your pen or take your laptop or take your place in line? Those are all ownership rules, right? Who gets to the front of the line? That's an ownership rule. So these are all rules. They're laws in a manner of speaking. They're informal laws, but we know them. So, you know, for example, um, you know, for uh, for a concert or for graduation, you know, it's crowded, leaving this pre-COVID times. Um, and you go there and let's say that your your mom tells you to save seats, right? So I guess there are five, five folks in your family. So you go there and you put out, you know, you tear up a program you put on, you sit down and you have four pieces of paper beside you and you're sitting and someone sits down on one of the seats that have a piece of paper. What do you say? At that point, I guess you're like, well, that's mine, but it's it's just just like such a social unacceptable thing that I don't even know what I would say. I'd probably just be shocked at that. You say, Hey, that's mine. Right. I say (laughs) the person said, well, are you here with four pieces of paper? You say, no, that's for my, you know, that's my mom. He says, well, I don't see your mom. Right. When your mom's here, I will not sit on her lap. But before <laughs> your mom comes here, I don't I don't I don't recognize I don't respect essentially what you're saying is symbolic possession. Take another example. You're at the supermarket. OK. Uh, and you and your family have got a big shopping cart. And I walk along. You're in the checkout line. And I say salted butter. This is a perfect. This is what I'm looking for. And I pick it up. And then I say two percent milk. Perfect. And I reach and I take that and I walk away. What are you thinking to yourself? Again, what what is Professor Salzman doing? Like, what, what are you junk, doing? Right? What a <laughs> yeah. And yet, you don't own that. You haven't paid for it. Right? Your, your claim of possession is entirely custom. And you're assuming that everyone is going to respect this sort of customary claim that you have made. It's a rule, but it's not a rule you can enforce with the police or the state. But it's a rule that we almost all follow right? No one has ever reached into my shopping cart and taken something out. People have on occasion refused to respect uh, some seats that I'm trying to save when it's crowded. 
And it's kind of interesting to think, well, when do those rules break down and when don't they? When don't they break down? Same thing when you're putting out, you know, uh, towels on a beach, right? Or you're saving, um, you're saving chairs along the pool. These are all unspoken rules for who gets what. And the question is, do we respect them or not? But to be sure, they're rules about ownership. That's, that's really interesting. And a few that you bring up in the book that are really controversial now are airplane seats. Should you lean back your airplane seat? In my personal opinion, I lean back my airplane seat because that's my seat and I really don't care that it, that's my seat. You can lean back yours if it's bothering you. So right, it's mine, right? That's, that's why the book <laughs> is called mine. So, so let's think about the airplane seat, right? So, um, all right. So you, um, you know, you, um, Taylor, are sitting in front of me. I'm 6'1", Okay. Before before we take off, though, the seat's, you know, in the upright position, as we all know, um, plane takes off. I lower the uh, the seat, the um, the tray table, take out my laptop, and I start to type. You then lean back. Now, you why do you feel you can lean back? Why is it yours? Because it's mine. Like it's mine. My okay, you've got feeling it's mine. Let me give my you a story. The seat. Yeah, so you bought the seat, but you bought the seat to sit on. Right. That's all. That's it. It says you're in 25A. It doesn't say anything else. You believe you can lean back because of one of the other stories called attachment. It's mine because it's attached to something that's mine. Because I can lean my seat back into this space, that space is also mine. Uh, I have a different story. I have a current. I have current possession. Right. I'm using this space as my workspace. And when you lean your seat back into it, I can't work anymore with my laptop and you're trespassing into my space. So there's some very interesting things about this story. So first of all, it's another example of how there's two conflicting stories of of who gets what. But there's more that's going on than that. So for one thing, there didn't used to be fights over reclining airline seats. The reason there are fights today is twofold. The first is we use trade tables differently. We didn't used to use tray tables for laptops and stuff. It was just, you know, eating rubber chicken and other airline food. No one cared about what was going on in the tray. The other issue is that airlines have basically shrunk the space between seats. It used to be about 33 inches between seats. Now it's 28 or 29. They've taken a resource and made it scarcer. There's less space. And that space is more valuable because we're now using it for laptops. And so where we're left with is basically this fight. And there are fights that break out all the time. Uh, over reclining seats or not literally fights that break out. Here's the thing. It's interesting. The airline actually does have a rule. The rule is you're allowed to lean back, but they will never tell you what the rule is. And the people, the, the airline stewards will never enforce it. And the reason for that is they use a strategy of ownership we call deliberate ambiguity. They basically get, get there's an advantage they have by having you and me get angry at each other and basically working it out amongst ourselves, instead of them saying, no, you know, Professor Salzman, she has the right to lean back. That gets me angry at the airline. So first of all, it shifts the uh, the anger onto the passengers, even though the airline's the one creating the problem. Second of all, it creates an incentive for you and me both to pay more and go to Economy Plus or business, where you don't have to deal with this issue. But here's what's really interesting. So this, this battle, uh, that's taking place at 35,000 feet, the same battle is taking place on the internet. So if you, um, I don't know, you go on Amazon for Christmas shopping and let's say you want to buy your brother, I don't know, basketball or something. 
Uh, all of a sudden, what you'll find as you start going to other websites is you get these ads that start popping up about all things basketball or all things sporting goods. That's not a coincidence, right? The, the site that you went to, Amazon or whatever, they have taken your click stream, which is basically your looks and your likes, what you're typing in, and they've sold it to advertisers. This generates most of the money of the internet economy. But why should they own your clickstream? Why shouldn't you own your clickstream? Now, what the applications say is, look, we, we built this you know, great website. And as the price of you using our website, uh, essentially, is your clickstream is attached. You're leaving it on our website, so we're going to take it. It's basically you leaning back. Or you could say, no, and this is one of the other stories, self-ownership. The clickstream is part of me. You can't take what's, what's mine. Right now, apart from California and in Europe, this is up in the air, up for grabs. And these websites are basically taking your information, my information for free. It doesn't have to be that way, but we don't think about it as an ownership challenge. But realize it's these stories that are battling. There's no natural right answer. You said earlier ownership is a social construct. That's exactly right. And we can choose, right? We can have our own story. That's that's really interesting. So ownership basically is a battle between narratives. It's basically who's the best storyteller and who's the best convincer at that point. Because I mean, that's what it would seem if there are two different stories. Obviously, you have to have the law behind you. But I mean, the law came from somewhere. So then somebody had a really good story or somebody was just in power or something. I'm curious, how do these ownership laws come into being? Is it from the person who tells the best narrative or obviously... Uh, yeah. Nowadays, it's law upon law upon law. So, how do they come into place? So, you know, in, in earliest societies, basically, there are cultural customs that develop um, over why someone owns something, why someone doesn't own something. Um, those become more formalized over time into rules, into laws. And you're right; these are always battling stories, battling narratives. But you're also right in that power matters. Right. And what we write about in the book is example after example where powerful, wealthy interests have their stories chosen. Right. Because they can tell their story more loudly or their reasons that the people in power listen to some stories more than other stories. Right. So, I mean, to take kind of the most the most egregious example, slavery. Slavery is taking the story uh, of self-ownership. Right. I, I control my body. And those who are more powerful, who enslaved Africans, brought them to the to the New World, to to America. Basically, no, we have a different story. Different story basically is labor. You know, we captured you. You're ours. Um, now, those are two competing stories. But obviously, you know, the slaveholding states had the power, uh, and so it is stories, but it's also power as part of that as well. So it, it comes down to who's really good at talking and telling stories and who also has a really big club. So those are the two ones. And I guess whoever has both of those, they have a really, really big advantage in the ownership area. That's part of it. Part of it also, though, is that we take a lot of ownership rules as, as, as for granted, right, as God-given, literally God-given. So the early slaveholders, they basically said this is the will of God. That's how they justified slavery. One of the things that, that, you know, that we do in this book is basically show again and again how it's just a story, right? And there are other stories that may be better stories. So the internet is probably the best example of what we talked about. There's no reason that the uh, website should own our click streams. 
right? There's just as strong a reason we should own our click streams and they should pay us for them or they should ask our permission, which is, which is the situation in some parts of the world. Anytime you get a new resource, it's always going to be up for grabs. And that's what's happening right now with, uh, with click streams in the internet. That's that's really interesting. Unfortunately, we we have to wrap up, but I'd love to keep discussing this on. This would be a very fascinating concept, and I'm I'm very curious to dive more into your book and review it even more than I did for this interview. But we're unfortunately we have to wrap up, so I have to ask you one of our last questions, which is what books have had an impact on you and why? Yeah, so let me start with one book. It's called it, it might seem a bit odd it's called West with the Night. West with the Night. It's not a very well-known book. Um, and it basically uh, is a story uh, of um, Africa in the 1930s, this, this woman's experience. She was, a, she was a pilot. And the reason it's a, it's a very, it was a very influential book for me to read is it's so beautifully written. All right, so a lot of what I do, even though I'm a teacher, a lot of what I do is I write uh, and I, I share ideas. And reading this book really carefully taught me how to be a really good communicator. Uh, the author, Beryl Markham, has just this incredibly simple, beautiful way of writing. Uh, and so I'd really recommend um, your listeners read the book. Not only is it a great read, but if you read it kind of as a writer yourself and you see how she constructs her sentences and her paragraphs, it'll turn you into a much better writer as well. It certainly did that, um, did that for me. Uh, in terms of the... I guess the second question, sort of what, what advice um, would I share? Uh, I would say uh, follow your bliss, follow your heart, right? There's no need right now to settle on any single, on any single career. I knew early on that I loved being outside, uh, and I knew that I wanted to do something that was somehow related to the environment. And that's been kind of my guiding, my guiding star throughout my career. I've done a lot of different things, but they've always been associated one way or another with the environment. Uh, and I think everyone has something special that, that they care about. Um, and to find ways, to, I think not necessarily the job, just to keep that as part of your life and to keep that central, to always remember what is the sort of thing that really gives me bliss, that really centers me and make sure that's an important part of your life. Um, that, at least in my experience, has been incredibly helpful. That's that's really interesting. Going back to your books, I love reading books and then analyzing kind of how the writer um, puts out their thoughts because I enjoy writing as well and I'd love to be a writer. It's interesting to see that how many different styles people have in fiction, nonfiction, and everywhere else. It's it's been a fascinating thing to do with all the books I've read. Yeah, and that's a great habit to have. It turns you into a better writer uh, as well. It's really enjoyable just to see. I mean, different depending on people who live in the world, they have different ways of writing. So that's really interesting as well. Well, thank you so much, Professor Salzman, for coming on the interview. I had a great time discussing ownership law and the philosophy of it and how it controls our world and everything else we talked about in between. It was a great conversation. Well, thanks so much. I mean, the the thing that Michael and I are are, are hoping for, for people who read the book, uh, is that quite literally, you will look at the world around you differently than you did before. And as a teacher, that's really all you can all you can hope for is to have students and people who read the book realize, hey, we're swimming in water. So I thought that was really interesting because 
I hadn't ever thought about ownership as almost a social construct in a way of kind of containing or organizing a society. Um, I'd never heard that idea. I thought that was really unique. I know. I feel like it's one of those things we kind of take for granted. I actually really liked what the metaphor that he used about the fish, how the fish is swimming in water, but it's never thinking to itself like, I'm swimming in water, you know? But then when it dies, it changes its entire outlook on the world around it. And so I think it's really cool that he was talking about how, I guess, every single day we're having, like, bumping against these issues or whatever of ownership, but none of us, I feel like most people have never like thought about it, you know? So like, like you said, I thought it was just a really interesting point and kind of a crazy world without it, you know? Yeah. So like even in traffic laws, you kind of have to think who is there first in the lane. So then you don't like run into people. It's kind of like a, I didn't even realize that with traffic laws as well. Um, siblings and family dynamics, that's an obvious one. So <laughs> I'm vital. sure. I know it's like just what would happen you know like if you came to a four-way and then people started getting at it because instead of going first or whatever it is like it'd be a crazy world (laughs) it'd be kind of hectic you know it would be really hectic um like all of the stuff you can really think of um it's it's really interesting I'm sure the more we sat here the more examples we could come up with that was really interesting Maddie, I'm curious, as we kind of continue interviewing people, um, I'm curious to see how many new ideas kind of come and new theories that we are exposed to, like this one with ownership and how it controls all of our lives. I'm curious to see how that continues, like in the future of this podcast. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, I feel like we've interviewed so many guests and just the amount. That's why I love talking to them, you know, because they're different people than you and I with different experiences and backgrounds and whatever. And so they come on here thinking about the world in a way that I might not. And I love it. I love hearing their thoughts on all these different things and then taking that input and kind of applying it and saying, oh my word, I never thought about it in that way. And it's like kind of broadening broadening your horizons. I I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah, um, it was... That's that's really interesting. And the other thing is how each guest's ex- like expertise shapes their perspective is also really interesting. It's all kind of interesting how the stuff you like dig deep into also shapes the way you think. I know. I guess we never kind of think about how much it affects us, you know? At least I wouldn't. You know, if I was a whatever, like if I was Professor Salzman, I wouldn't think about it very much. But it, it is true. It really does shape your outlook on the world. It is really interesting. And with that, Maddie, hit us up with our announcements. <laughs> so we have a website at aimingforthemoon.com. We are also on Instagram and Twitter at aiming the number four moon. And we post regular updates. We'd love to hear from you and make sure to follow us because we'd love to have you. And we're also on YouTube at aiming for the moon podcast. So go check all those out. Yep. And don't forget to rate the podcast and share it around because that really helps get more guests, which allows us to get more listeners, which allows us to get more guests. And it's the beautiful cycle of the interviewing podcast world. Another announcement, we'll just start releasing on Saturdays instead of Fridays more often because it's just easier with our school schedules. But besides that, we're still going to keep releasing at a regular basis. So don't forget. Set your sights high. And aim for the moon.